This is The Guardian. Today, there's been mourning and reflection on the Queen's passing. But what happens now? On Thursday evening, under soft drizzle, I joined the crowds beginning to gather outside Buckingham Palace. People were looking for a way to mark the moment, to pay respect, to feel part of history. Do you mind describing to me what you're seeing here? Well, it's absolutely packed with people all over the place, all um, ages, different backgrounds all generations and just having a solidarity I think that whether you want the monarchy or you don't you have a real love for the Queen because she's been so amazingly faithful The mood was muted elderly couples huddled under umbrellas teenagers took exaggeratedly sad selfies and against the palace railings tourists struggled to catch a glimpse of the official notice posting the Queen's death. How'd you feel? Heartbroken. I'm not sure what words can use to describe it. If you're British, you know. If you don't, you don't. It's one of those things. It's like liking the rain. It's one of those things. To some, it felt really personal. I was sobbing. I didn't understand why or why, because I've never met her or anything, but I felt like I've lost a member of my family, a dear member of my family, that's how it felt. I feel like I've lost my grandmom. To others, like this woman's 16-year-old daughter, it was a moment to question what might come next. I feel like a lot of the Commonwealth countries might start to go, because now, like, I think Queen Elizabeth was like what's keeping them together. So now she's gone, they might start to edge away. But what does happen now? With the country officially in mourning and parliamentary business suspended, the United Kingdom is muddling through a stop-start process of centuries-old rituals. From The Guardian, I'm Nashi Iqbal. Today in Focus, the steadying presence of Queen Elizabeth II has ended. What happens now? Jonathan Friedland, you're a Guardian columnist, and on Friday you wrote a piece that was really poignant about what the Queen's passing means for the nation. Now, the night before, I'd gone to Buckingham Palace and I went to interview people there and speak to them about how they were feeling. And actually, quite a few of them were surprised about how emotional they felt. Why do you think it is that people found themselves so unexpectedly caught up in this moment? I think it's because of the role she played in the country. And that partly just comes with the job of being head of state. You know, you're the face on the coins, you're the head on the stamps and so on. Um, it just means you're part of the almost consciousness and subconscious of the country. You know, that amazing stat, a rare stat cited by Boris Johnson that turns out to be true, which is that surveys show 
that the person who appeared most frequently uh, in people's dreams was the Queen. And I think millions of us are trying to understand why we are feeling this deep and personal and almost familial sense of loss. Perhaps it's partly that she's always been there, a changeless human reference point in British life. The person who, all the surveys say, appears most often in our dreams. You know, every time you go past a post box that has her initials on it, you know, it somehow just absorbs into you. And therefore, you know, whatever your views, by the way, on the institution and how it should change or be abolished even, it, she's just part of the national landscape. And therefore, when some, suddenly that is removed, that, I think, makes people just feel discombobulated and uneasy. We should say, of course, there are some people who did feel none of this connection or kinship because instead they saw her as a symbol of an institution they associate with privilege, the class system, the empire. There are people who feel that. And there's no doubt that all this talk of, you know, universal outpouring of grief will, will never be true. Nothing is ever fully universal. Nevertheless, I think for an extraordinary portion of the country, somehow by remaining this simultaneously enigmatic and somehow approachable figure, for them, she was part of the, part of the landscape of the country and people became attached to, to that idea. Jonathan, as you say, part of the reason this is such a big deal for people is that the Queen's death is an end of an era an era that's included some incredibly transformative periods for Britain. Her reign began just years after the Second World War ended, but she was already a public figure during the war. So not only was she a monarch for 70 years, she was one of the last links between wartime Britain and the present day. Yes, I think that's the heart of the matter, actually. The defining event of modern Britain is the Second World War, and specifically, I would argue, 1940, and that period where Britain stood alone against Nazism, against Hitler, um, against tyranny, and Winston Churchill at the time called it our finest hour. And I think that moment has become the kind of creation myth of modern Britain. It's what we draw on all the time. And she is, as you say, the last human link left to that event. And it, it's not just that she happened to be alive at the time, she was an actual player in it. So you look at photographs of Winston Churchill on VE Day, Victory in Europe Day in 1945, and she's there on that balcony. Or in 1940 itself, you know, if you've seen that film, The King's Speech. If one and all we keep resolutely faithful her father is girding himself to deliver a speech that will, uh, you know, brace the country for fighting Hitler alone. We shall prevail. He delivers the speech and then comes out and is embraced by his daughter, Princess Elizabeth. So how was Papa, Elizabeth? Oh, halting at first, but he got much better, Papa. Bless you. So this is an event that is now mythic. It feels for people so long ago. And yet there was the head of state who was actually part of it. And her first prime minister was Winston Churchill. She could draw on that uh, defining event of modern Britain 
even quite easily. She didn't have to overdo it. And the example that always comes to my mind is that speech she gave in the start of the COVID period, where in April 2020, she went on television and reassured people, we have been through tough times before and we have got through them. That was so obviously everyone knew she meant the Second World War. We will succeed and that success will belong to every one of us. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. It exerted enormous emotional power to be told from someone of that generation, look, I've been through worse and we will come out of this. Jonathan, beyond the symbolism of all of this, the Queen did also have a practical role as a head of state. Now, part of that was domestic, which we know meant meeting weekly with her prime ministers, starting, like you said, with Winston Churchill, and there were 15 in total. Since the Queen has died, have any of those former prime ministers said anything about those meetings? It's been fascinating, and it's one area of public life that is very rarely revealed or disclosed. The impression that's emerged is that it's a kind of therapy. It's a weekly sort of counselling session, partly because of the deep confidentiality. I mean, Theresa May made this joke in Parliament that it was the one meeting she had that she knew would never leak. These were not meetings with a high and mighty monarch, but a conversation with a woman of experience and knowledge and immense wisdom. They were also the one meeting I went to which I knew would not be briefed out to the media. John Major, you know, has said that you would mention a foreign leader if you were a prime minister saying you're having problems with the leader of country X, and she would then say, "Mm, yes, I knew his father, and he always did X, you know. Now, that is quite a body of knowledge to draw upon. There was a great wealth of knowledge that was waiting to be tapped, and it, uh, it just emerged during the conversations. They were extraordinarily useful. And of the many meetings you had in the week as Prime Minister, uh, the hour plus that you usually uh, spent with the Queen was among the most valuable. The other side of the Queen's job was international. She acted as a kind of diplomat on the world stage, a tool for soft power for Britain. Do you think she'll be missed in that respect? Yeah, I think partly it was a a tremendous diplomatic sort of asset, if not weapon, for Britain. And that was because other world leaders really wanted to meet her. And that is an odd thing. You know, you'd think if you're the president of the United States, say, you are the biggest celebrity in the world, why would you care? They would really want it. I mean, all of them. All politicians have an ego wall full of pictures of them shaking hands with everyone. The one they wanted most is a picture with the Queen. It linked them to epic history. And therefore, a meeting with her put them, they knew then they were taking their place alongside uh, others who had been photographed with her, which would mean Kennedy and Eisenhower and uh, Lyndon Johnson or whatever. It sort of put you in the historical pantheon. There was some fantastic video that surfaced of her at a diplomatic reception in 1991. I just wonder so much. I mean, he is master of his own situation, is he? He really is. Absolutely. I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? She's working the room. And it's really worth watching because she's there with all these really powerful people, all men, incidentally, Helmut Kohl and George uh, Bush Sr. And you just watch how she 
puts people at their ease. So we told him exactly what would happen yeah. if they didn't. Yeah. And that's what happened. Didn't tell him face to face. No, but he couldn't. He couldn't go to Baghdad like Why you. Why not, ma'am? I went to Baghdad. Well, I knew you did. You're expendable now. <laughs> Put aside. Yes, I'm expendable. Yes, that's You're true. expendable. She smooths connections. She deals with difficult people. Former Prime Minister Edward Heath was there. You could see him required some managing. Um, you know, they often talked over her, these men, but she was just able to say the right thing to the right person and connect people. And I think um, that was tremendously useful. There were certain things that she, the sort of authority of her office and who she was was able to unlock. And I'm just thinking of that visit she did to to Ireland uh, where she even, you know, began her speech in Irish. And in some ways apologised or recognised anyway where Britain had, you know, gone badly wrong in Ireland. And th that had a kind of weight that nobody else could have had that. No politician could have had that, again, because of who she was and the period she had come from. So I think she had, she, you know, there, were, there was real politics in how she did her role. It just isn't politics in the way we used to thinking of it. And one place where that political dimension of her role was particularly complicated was her relationship with the Commonwealth countries that were formerly colonised by the British Empire. And we should say that the awe and admiration that you spoke of isn't universal, is it? Or an admiration for the institution is absolutely not universal. That's quite right. And um, there is discussion uh, uh, of republicanism in several countries that had the Queen as head of state, you know, referendum in Australia in 1999, discussion of it all the time in, uh, in New Zealand, in elsewhere in the Caribbean. Obviously, Barbados became a republic uh, less than a year ago uh, under the Queen. Uh, but many of them have said what held them back from making that move was affection and respect for the Queen. And uh, I think, you know, again, often said in whispers, I, th I heard it myself in some of those uh, places, was discussion which would say, look, we're going to stay with it while she's there. Once she has gone, different story. And um, there we're now into that different story. So I think it's... Uh, very possible that the awe and admiration was reserved for her. And once she's not there, um, things could be up for grabs. Right, because on Saturday we heard the news that Antigua and Barbuda declared it would be holding a referendum on the question of becoming a republic. Although I do wonder, actually, if other countries may wait until after the Queen's funeral until they make similar announcements. That funeral is, of course, on Monday 19th of September, King Charles has declared it a bank holiday. But before we get to that, there will be an official full week of national mourning. Jonathan, just how elaborate have the preparations for all of this been? We got a flavour of it already at the weekend. <laughs> With the, this formal meeting of the Accession Council or Acclamation Council to anoint um, formally Charles as the new king. We, therefore, the Lords spiritual and temporal of this realm and members of the House of Commons, together with other members of Her Late Majesty's Privy Council and representatives of the realms and territories, aldermen and citizens of London 
and others. We're, we're going to be into that every day. When you, you know, if you're at work and you come home from work and put the TV on, it will be some huge ceremonial ritual, arcane, costumed, uh, ancient, or anyway, given the appearance of ancient. A lot of these uh, rituals were devised actually in the 19th century. Uh, but it will look like that, and you'll hear the royal commentators talking about these eccentric titles about Garter, King of Arms, and Silver Stick in Waiting that sound as if they're out of Harry Potter, but will actually be um, you know, parts of this pro tradition. It's a costume, it's a pageant, and crucial in it will be the role of the people themselves. Will they turn up in huge numbers? Will they be lining the route as, as expected? And will they be able to sustain it? Because this is long. It's going to go on all the way till the 19th. Um, this is a long, long haul. Why do you think we are still so wedded to all this arcane ritual, all the protocol? Does it not feel quite antiquated? No, it really does. I think I was thinking about this, actually, whether... How you would ever change it is the problem because, um, you know, people can think it's arcane, but who's going to be the one from their side, I mean, that would dare change it? Because if you're a royal, then you would insist on having that treatment as part of your funeral. I mean, the only person who could actually change it is the new king. I mean, he could, he could now sit with his advisors and go, I'm glad we've done this for my mother, but we now have to, I'm going to, you know, by order of the king downscale the ritual um and uh, uh that's the only person who could do it otherwise it's one of these things it's sort of a taboo until it happens again and then it happens and it follows the same rule book but look part of it is this is this is show business and theater and the queen understood that that the monarchy was reliant on theater and spectacle and it is what is expected and that is part of, you know, brand Britain, like it or not. A lot of um, a lot of us might not love that, that, that it's such a backward-looking part of our, you know, image in the world, um, but it is. And at the same time all of this protocol has been going on, there's been a lot of mixed messaging for the rest of the country. For instance, cricket and rugby went ahead. But football matches, which are expensive to attend, were cancelled and people weren't necessarily being reimbursed for the money that they'd already spent on accommodation. And then, of course, there's people on zero-hour contracts who've been talking about how they've been losing earnings through all these other cancelled events. It all does feel a bit inconsistent, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it is hugely inconsistent. And I think they've got this really badly wrong. And I've been surprised by it because... This has been in the works and prepared for years. And you would think they would really sort of game this out. And instead, it's been a mess. Uh, and um, the, the most egregious example is the one you've mentioned about football, where actually fans say they would have really liked to have gathered and shown their respect and the players would have worn black armbands and they'd have sung the national anthem. And it could have been a good thing. Uh, are coming together. People don't like being sort of pent up and not everyone can come down to a palace or would even want to. But stadiums would have been good meeting points. An even more ridiculous example to my mind, the BBC cancelling in the last night of the proms, you don't get a more patriotic and probably monarchist crowd than the last night of the proms. Why, you know, sure, strip out all the really overtly celebratory stuff, but play the you know music that the Queen loved. Be you know, you can have a moment of silence. All these things would have been possible, and if you know, it's far too early. But it does just make you wonder why. Um, you know, we're into a new 
head of state now. And you sort of think if it wouldn't have been difficult for Charles just to give a nod and say, my mother would have wanted people to gather and continue, so don't cancel things. And the, the best theory I've heard of this is that the reason people are doing it isn't some deep well of grief for the Queen. It's rather that it's executives and PR advisors saying you'll get monstered if you don't do it. And therefore, you know, better to be safe than sorry. And I think there's probably some truth in that. And I think that's really sad, actually. It's a really bad way to make decisions. It's bad for businesses. After COVID, people do not want to be told to be locked up at home again. Um, And I think, you know, day of the funeral, sure, we can shut down everything for that day. But for the rest of it, I think it's really um, it, it's a it's a complete sort of mess because it's inconsistent, and anyway, not really in the spirit of her, you know, from what we know of her, which was this kind of stoic, keep calm, carry on, keep doing what you're doing. That was so often her message and the way she lived her life. So it seems the first sort of misstep actually of the new Charles the Third era. Coming up. What will the era of King Charles III look like? And what could it mean for the monarchy? Jonathan, we are now in the reign of King Charles III, who has been waiting for this moment his whole life. At 73, he's the oldest ascending monarch to the throne. Now, the Queen was held in a lot of affection by the nation, and by extension, the royal family seemed to get a softer pass than they might have otherwise. Do you expect there to be any change in how the royals perform their roles in this new era? Our colleague Stephen Bates made a very good point in, uh, in our coverage uh, which was that the, you know, this is on some level, it's a cliche, a soap opera. It does require new storylines. And yet there are, in a way, in effect, fewer characters uh, uh, around. Obviously, the Queen herself, the centre of the whole saga, uh, has gone. But also the exit abroad of Harry and Meghan, his view, Stephen's view, was that this now puts much more weight on Charles, Camilla, uh, William and Kate, in the sense that they will now have to perform just practically many more public duties. There's just fewer pairs of hands for these duties to go around. I think you might see more of Princess Anne, the king's sister, as well. Maybe maybe there'll be more to do for Edward. But of, co- of course, Prince Andrew, Duke of York, he's out of circulation. No one wants to see him. So therefore, uh, I think it's going to be more concentrated. Another big news moment of the weekend was when we saw the pictures of William and Kate and Harry and Meghan all together suggesting a new front of unity. Yes, people are going to want look for any sign, any signal of either rapprochement between Harry and William, between Kate and Meghan, or, you know, distance. And that will, it will be interesting to watch, you know, the photographers and the tabloids will will work hard for the, at the funeral to, on the one hand, they, they will feel obliged to be um, tremendously respectful. On the other hand, they're going to be desperately scrutinising the body language. The big thing would be, do Harry 
and Meghan ever come back. And Charles obviously held out a kind of olive branch, didn't he, when he spoke on Friday. I want also to express my love for Harry and Meghan as they continue to build their lives overseas. Jonathan, even though this event, the Queen's death, has been anticipated and carefully planned for for years, it's also arrived at a time of intense political upheaval and a major economic crisis. It does feel like such an historic week. Well, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? In news terms, a week that begins with uh, one head of state and one head of government, one monarch, one prime minister, and ends, the, the same week ends with a new monarch and a new prime minister. And all of this has happened in a week that actually should have been really big for politics and for parliamentary scrutiny. And that is this massive injection of public spending, government spending, in order to freeze energy bills, you know, 130, 150, 170 billion pounds of taxpayers' money is to be used to uh, freeze energy bills. Now, that would have required a massive political debate, particularly over how it's going to be funded, because Labour want it to be funded by taxing the energy giants. And instead, Liz Truss has uh, said that, no, we're going to have to pay for it ourselves just later. Um, That would have required uh, and been the subject of massive politics. And instead, more or less minutes after she announced this plan, Liz Truss, uh, the rumours were swirling that the Queen was on her deathbed. And so this has gone by without either the scrutiny and criticism it might have got, or even, from Liz Truss's point of view, really the lift, the you know lift in public opinion that she would have hoped for. It does feel like we are in quite destabilising times. You mentioned earlier about that link to history and how the national sense of self is tied to the Queen, to World War II, to that foundational myth of what the United Kingdom is. And now that link has been severed. How significant do you think that is particularly given what else is going on in the country right now? Well, I think it could be very destabilising. I mean, I do think that on some level, you know, historians may well decide that that day in September 2022 was the end of the post-war era in Britain uh, and that we're now into a new chapter. The country that she took over would barely recognise the country that we are today. The, almost the only thing they had in common was her. And I think without that, bigger change could be very destabilising. I think, for example, about Brexit, um, you know, which uh, The Guardian is is fairly lonely and still actually daring to mention, you know, a big upheaval like that, in a way, it was palatable because you thought, well, we're still Britain because, you know, it's still her face on the coins and it's still red letter boxes with her initials on them. I think if there's more change, um, that will be, uh, or even just a very difficult autumn and winter as we're about to go through, um, I think it's it could be much harder to take because people will not will look around and won't find anything that is as it was, you know, in their mum or you know grandma's day, and I think that could be quite hard um, and makes political change more loaded and more charged than it would have been before. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you, Noshin. That was Jonathan Friedland. 
You can read his column, The Queen's Death Will Shake This Country Deeply. She was a steady centre amid constant flux. And more at theguardian.com. I would also recommend Friday's episode of Politics Weekly, which takes a look at the Queen's political legacy. Listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Josh Kelly, Tom Glasser, and Clitzia Sala. Sound design is by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Nicole Jackson. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.